Have you ever been to the beach before and you've stood ankle deep in the water and after about 10 or 15 minutes, have you noticed that you drifted a little bit from the exact spot that you were standing? I grew up in South Florida and so I went to the beaches on a regular uh, pattern and I noticed sometimes when I'd get into the beach, they call this beach drift. You'd be standing in one area and then after a period of time, you would drift and it was very gradual. It didn't happen very quickly, but it happened very imperceptibly. Well, I think that's a good analogy in our Christian life that sometimes we can drift from God. Now, there's two ways that we can drift. One is in the area of salvation. There are a lot of people that hear the message of Jesus Christ. They may have grown up in a Christian home. Maybe they went to a Christian school. Maybe their parents or grandparents brought them to church, and they've heard the gospel most of their life, but they've never really embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And what happens is they get inoculated to the message of salvation, and they begin to drift. And the longer they drift and the further they drift, the harder it is to come to Jesus Christ. But then there are those people that are truly born again, and what happens over time, the cares of life the worries of life, maybe the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of materialism, or just laziness, we can begin to drift in our Christian life. We're not in the Word like we used to be. We're not praying like we used to be. Maybe our church attendance is sporadic or we're not going to church at all. As Christians, if we're not vigilant and we're not diligent, we can drift in our own walk with God. Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning from the book of Hebrews. So if you would turn to chapter 2, and the title of this message is Stop Drifting, because in verse 1, he mentions the word drift there, and I believe that this is the theme of this particular chapter. Now, as we've embarked on the book of Hebrews, let me just again give you a little bit of background. We don't know, as John said last week, who the writer of Hebrews is, but he was writing primarily to a Jewish community, and many of them had crossed the line of faith in Jesus Christ. Many of them have trusted in Christ, they were born again, but because of persecution, according to chapter 10 of Hebrews, many of them were tempted to go back to their former lives of Judaism. On the other hand, you had some that were not saved. They identified as part of the covenant community of God's people. They were Jews that were intellectually convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, but they hadn't come the full way of salvation. They were sort of like Judas. Judas identified with the 12 disciples. Judas was a part of what Jesus was doing and all the miracles and everything else. But you and I know that Judas never fully crossed the line of faith. And so the writer of Hebrews is dealing with both groups. He's dealing with Christians that are tempted to go back into Judaism because they don't want to pay the price for their faith. They are suffering persecution. And then he's dealing with those Jews that are identifying with the body of believers, but they're not fully convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, and so they're tempted to go back into the old forms of Judaism. And so what the writer of Hebrews does is he basically argues throughout this book that Jesus is better. And what he argues is that Jesus is better than the prophets. He's saying the Old Testament was good but Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. So he's better than the prophets. He's better than angels because angels were the ones that delivered the law of God on Mount Sinai. 
He's better than Old Testament people. He's going to argue this in chapter 3. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua in chapter 4. He's also a better high priest. He's telling these Jews not to go back to Judaism because Jesus is the better high priest. He also says Jesus is the better sacrifice. They offered animals in the Old Testament. He says, no, Jesus is the full and final sacrifice. And finally, he says Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. The Old Covenant was good, but the Old Covenant was filled with types and shadows. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant because he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant. And so what he's telling them is, don't go back to Judaism. And again, we're not denigrating Judaism. We're not denigrating the Old Testament. However, the New Testament is the fuller and more complete revelation. And so he's telling these Jews, those that are saved and those that are identifying with the Christian community, but they're not fully convinced, he says, don't go back to Judaism. And what he's going to do here in this chapter is he's going to give several reasons why we're not to drift in our walk with God. And again, I believe he's addressing primarily the group of people that are basically going to church, as we would say today, and they're identifying with the covenant community, but they're going to drift back into Judaism and drift away from salvation. I believe that's the context here. However, we're going to apply this to Christians as well who are tempted to drift in their walk with God. So there's several reasons why you and I should not drift away from salvation or sanctification. First of all, Jesus says you will experience a greater judgment. You will experience a greater judgment. Now notice what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, for this reason, we must play closer attention to what we have heard. In other words, we need to give attention to the gospel message that we have heard so that we do not, here it is, drift away from it. He doesn't want them to drift because some of those Jews that were intellectually convinced but they hadn't crossed the line of faith, he's saying if you don't cross the line of faith, you're going to drift away from God and you may die in your sins. Or we would say there are believers today that if they're not vigilant, they're going to drift in their walk with God. I was reading this week about a young man who was 19 in Indonesia. He actually was on this makeshift boat. You could see the picture of it. And he was working on this boat. And what happened was the boat got unloosed from its moorings and it drifted out into the ocean. He was out at sea for 49 days. They said that 10 ships had actually passed him by and didn't pick him up. Finally, one ship picked him up. Well, that's the word drift here. It means to drift from your moorings. And he's saying, I'm writing to you, is that you will pay special attention so that you will not drift. Verse 2, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. Now, what word is he talking about here? He's talking about the Ten Commandments and the other laws that were given by angels. You could look at this in Acts chapter 7. Because when Moses went up on the mountain, remember when he got the Ten Commandments and other laws as well, the angels were the ones that delivered it to Moses. He says, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. In other words, if the Old Testament law that was given by angels was binding upon God's covenant people in the Old Testament, if they violated that law, some of the consequences was you could die. He's saying if that's true of the Old Covenant, 
Look at verse 3, and here's the point that he's making. How will we escape, that is judgment, if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Now here's what he's arguing here. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And what he's saying is that under the old covenant, if people were punished because they disobeyed the law of God that was given by angels, if they received punishment in the old covenant, here's the point. How much more those of us in the new covenant who have heard the gospel message will receive a greater judgment? You see, it's the argument from the lesser to the greater. And his point is this, if you're a Jew and you're intellectually convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, but you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he says you better do it because if God punished people in the Old Testament for rejecting his word, how much more will he punish people who reject the message of salvation? So he says, don't drift. Don't drift. And here's a principle in the Bible, to whom much is given, much is required. In other words, there is greater condemnation for those who have greater knowledge. The more information that you have of the Bible, the more you know about the gospel message and you turn your back on it. And again, some people, they may be hostile towards the gospel. They reject it. They don't want anything to do with it. But then there are those people, as I said, that are raised in the church. They grew up believing the truth, but they haven't crossed the line of faith. They only have an intellectual of faith. What Jesus is saying here through the writer of Hebrews is that they are going to receive a greater condemnation if they die in their sins. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, speaking of Chorazin and Bethesda, he said to them, he said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethesda. Why? He says, because if the miracles were done that I did among you in Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, they would have repented long ago. And so his point was, you're going to receive a greater condemnation, Bethesda and Chorazin, because you were exposed to my miracles and you didn't want to listen. And he said, there's going to be a greater condemnation. Now you say, what about believers who drift? Is there going to be a greater judgment? Well, I believe that there's going to be loss of reward. Now, if you're truly saved and you drift from God, the Bible says, if you're truly a child of God, you'll stand before God in the day of judgment, not for condemnation in hell, but the Bible talks about the Bema seat. The Bema seat is when you and I will be evaluated for what we did for God post-salvation. And so it does matter whether or not you walk with God, you live for God, and you do the works of God following salvation. Why? Because God is going to evaluate your life and he's going to reward you commensurate with your faithfulness to him. And so his point is here, don't drift. And he says this is especially true because God authenticated the message of the gospel, not only through Jesus, when Jesus did miracles, but also the apostles in verse 4. How do we know that the gospel is the true gospel? It was authenticated through signs, wonders, and miracles. God did it through them. And so he's telling these believers, don't drift in your salvation because you're going to experience a greater judgment. There's a second reason why we're not to drift according to this passage, and that is this. Jesus has promised you a better world to come. 
In other words, Jesus here, he's going to assume his argument that he talked about in chapter one, that Jesus is better than angels. And how is Jesus better than angels? He's talked about that in chapter one. It is because Jesus is going to restore man's lost destiny. He has promised a better life to come for you and I. Notice what he says in verse five. For he did not subject angels to the world to come. In other words, God is promising us a better world. In fact, the word here for world refers to the inhabited world. There's coming a day, and this is going to be during the millennial kingdom, where God is going to renovate the earth, and it's going to be inhabited by people who have a glorified body. He says, he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying. Now, the writer here didn't forget who the author was of the book of Psalms. We know that the author ultimately was the Holy Spirit. And so the writer of Hebrews is not forgetting who authored Psalm 8, which he's about to quote here, but he's basically saying the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author. He says, someone has testified somewhere saying, and here he's going to quote Psalm chapter 8, and here is his point in quoting this psalm. It is to show that God ultimately designed in the book of Genesis for man to rule over the earth. Look what he says as he quotes Psalm 8. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he was left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subject to him. Now what the writer of Hebrews here is doing is he's quoting Psalm chapter 8. And he's saying that in the beginning, God's ultimate intention for man was that man would rule over the earth. Because if you read Psalm chapter 8, he basically says, what is man that you are so mindful of him? God, why did you put man over the works of your hands. You see, if you go back to the book of Genesis, what God did was he created Adam and Eve to basically rule over the earth. They were vice regents with God. We would say it this way, that Adam was uh, Tarzan. He was the king of the jungle, basically, and God delegated his rulership to Adam. And Adam was to subdue the earth, the Bible says. And as man began to multiply, man had the specific privilege of being the ruler of this earth. And he's saying, why would you do that for man? Considering who you are, God, and considering how man is insignificant, and yet God gave man the ability to rule. He had dominion over the earth. But here's what happened. Sin entered into the world. Do you remember when Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden? And when Adam sinned, he represented the whole human race and he basically corrupted the human race. And what happened to Adam and Eve was they lost that dominion. They lost that rulership. And Satan is now the ruler of this world. Now there's a certain degree in which man still rules. Because if you read Romans chapter 5, it says of Christians that we reign in this life. Well, in what way do we reign in this life? Well, we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and so we rule with Christ, spiritually speaking, 
in this life. But right now, man has lost that total dominion over the earth. Why? Because Satan is the usurper of the world. Do you remember in Luke chapter 4, when Satan was tempting Jesus, what did he say to him? He said, if you bow down and you worship me, he said, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world, for they have been given to me. You see, Satan is the usurper. He said, they've been given to me, and he said, I will give them to you, Jesus, if you bow down and worship me. And so man lost his ultimate destiny, which was to rule the earth when he fell into sin. But here's the point of what Jesus did for you and I. Jesus restored man's lost destiny. Because look what he says at the beginning of the verse. He says in verse 5, for he did not subject angels to the world to come. You see, ultimately, Jesus is greater than angels, and here's the reason why. Angels cannot restore man's lost destiny. Only Jesus could do that. Only God could do that. That's why Jesus is greater than the angels. Why? Because Jesus can do what angels cannot do, and angels cannot restore man's lost destiny. You say, well, what do you mean Jesus is going to restore a better world to come? Well, what's going to happen is when Jesus Christ comes back and he sets up his thousand-year millennial kingdom, you and I are going to rule and reign with Christ during that thousand-year kingdom. Now, obviously, as I said, we're ruling now to a certain degree. Man has dominion over this earth. He has subdued the earth, no doubt about that, but it's limited. But during the millennial kingdom, what's going to happen is... Jesus is going to restore to mankind those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're going to be restored that full reign that God intended. And so what he's saying here is don't drift from salvation. Why? Because God has promised you a better world to come. He is going to restore to you the lost destiny that basically was taken away in the garden, Jesus is going to restore that during the millennial kingdom. So he's given an incentive to these Jews who are drifting away from the gospel. He's telling them, don't reject Jesus Christ. Accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. Why? Because God has promised you a better world to come. And by the way, that's true of believers as well. You know, one of the motivations and the reasons why you should serve God One of the incentives to serve God now is not only love for God, but the Bible says you ought to serve God and love God because you're going to rule and reign with him in the kingdom. And here's the key. Your rulership and how much you reign, and I don't know how this is going to be worked out. The Bible doesn't give us all the details, but your reign in that kingdom and in eternity is going to be commensurate with your faithfulness to God now. In other words, the greater faithfulness you exhibit now in this life, the greater reign you're going to have in the next life. Yesterday I was reading about Kenny Rogers. You know, he passed away. And I remember growing up, I used to listen to Kenny Rogers. Remember the song, The Gambler? Everybody knows who Kenny Rogers is. He's kind of an icon in country music. And you know, as I read about his death, I googled about his faith, because I wanted to see if he was a born-again Christian, and I really couldn't find much. Now, I don't know the state of his heart prior to him dying, so I'm not here to judge. God's the ultimate judge, 
But here's what I thought to myself. He had a lot of fame. He had a lot of fortune. They even showed one of the mansions that he lived in and he was actually selling. Jesus had all of this stuff, or rather, Kenny Rogers had all of this stuff. And you know what? Now it doesn't matter. Because in the end, what's going to matter is what he did with Jesus Christ and whether or not he lived for Jesus Christ. And so that is an incentive for you and I not to drift in our walk with God. If we're Christians, we need to be faithful. And that means we need to be in the word of God on a regular basis because what happens is we get spiritually lazy. We stop reading the word. We start engaging more in social media maybe watching more TV or we get busy with life. And what happens is we're not consistently in the Word of God, we're not consistently in prayer, or we neglect fellowship on a regular basis. Obviously, we can't meet now, but we need to sharpen one another. We need to stay faithful to one another. And so, he's motivating them not to drift. Why? Because Jesus has promised you a better world to come. You see, God's ultimate destiny for man is that man would rule. Man lost that rulership when he sinned. He lost that dominion. And what Jesus did was he restores man's lost destiny, which means he's going to give you and I a better world to come. And that's an incentive to accept the gospel. It's also an incentive to walk in our relationship with Jesus Christ, because he says in verse 8, but now we do not yet see all things subject to him. See, not everything is subject to you and I at this point, but it will be in the future. Well, there's a third incentive not to drift, and that is this. Jesus died for you to bring you to glory and make you a part of his family. Notice what he says in verse 9. But we do not see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Notice he says, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, that speaks of his humiliation, crowned with glory and honor, that speaks of his exaltation, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, he says, look, Jesus has been made a little lower than the angels. Now, here's what some of the Jewish people were thinking in that day. They were thinking there's no way that Jesus could be better than angels because Jesus had a human body. And you and I know that humans are lower than angels because we have human bodies. Angels do not. Angels are immaterial. They're able to move out and about, and they're able to go from one spot to another spot very quickly. They're not omnipresent, But in the minds of the Jewish people, humans were lower than the angels. And so if Jesus became human, there's no way that Jesus could be greater than angels. And remember, that's what he's arguing in chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews, is that Jesus is greater than angels. And so what he does here in verse 9 is he explains why Jesus had to take on a human body. Because Jesus took on a human body, this does not mean that he's lower than the angels in terms of his quality and his value. Jesus is greater than the angels, but the reason why he took on a human body was to die. So let me read verse 9 again. He says, but we do see him, that is Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Why was he made a little lower than the angels? Because of the suffering of death 
That is his humiliation when he came to earth, took on a human body, but now he is crowned with glory and honor. That speaks of his exaltation so that by the grace of God, here it is, he might taste death for everyone. You see, this is another incentive not to drift from God. Is because Jesus died for you. It says he tasted death for everyone. The word taste there doesn't mean to sample. It means to fully experience. All of us have been to the mall before, and when you go to the mall, what do they do when you go by the food court? They usually have somebody out there with the tray, and they have a toothpick with a piece of meat on it, and what do they do? They want you to sample that piece of meat so that if you eat it, you'll end up going and you'll buying uh, the food at their particular uh, uh, area there. Well, the Bible says that Jesus didn't just sample. The Bible says he fully partook of death. And why did he die for you and I? So that you and I would have a place in the family of God. Jesus died in our place as a substitute. I was reading about this Indian chief who was known to be a man of justice and a man of mercy. He was very big. And one day, some of the people that worked for him some of his under-shepherds, as you would say, came to him and they said, Chief, we have a problem. They said, there's been a rash of burglaries within the tribe. What should we do? And he said, well, go out and find the person and bring them to me and we'll apply justice. And so they came back a couple days later and they said, we found the person who was committing the burglaries. And he said, well, who is it? And they kind of put their heads down and they said, chief, it's your old mother. Well, everyone looked at the chief to see what he would do. They were wondering if he was going to eliminate his justice because it was his mother. And so what he said to them was, tie her up. And so they tied her up and they stretched out her arms and they took off her shirt. And he was going to have the people behind her getting ready to whip her, which, by the way, she wouldn't have survived. And so right before they applied the blows to her back, the chief stood in front of his mother, and he took the blows for her. And you see, that chief was able to show justice, but he was also able to show mercy at the same time to his mother. And that's a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It says here... In verse 9, but we don't see him, but we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In other words, Jesus took our place as a substitute, and that's a reason why you and I should not drift from God. But then he goes on in verse 10, and he says this. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, and here he's going to quote from the Old Testament in verse 12, I will proclaim your name to my brethren, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, he says in verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, 
I and the children whom God has given me. Now you say, what is he talking about there? He's saying this, Jesus died for you, not only as a substitute, not only did he taste death for you, but Jesus died in order to make you a part of his family. In other words, we all have the same father. We're all part of the brotherhood. He makes us a part of his family. In fact, there is an Aryan Brotherhood. I don't know if you ever heard of the Aryan Brotherhood. It's a white supremacy prison gang. They were founded in 1964 by Irish people. And you know what the goal was? It was actually to protect white people in prisons. It's a white supremacy group. There are 20,000 members. They call it a brotherhood. You and I are part of a greater brotherhood. That brotherhood is we are part of the family of God. And as the family of God, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. God is our father. And you know why we follow God? is because we are part of the family of God. And so Jesus died for us, not only to pay for our sins, but to make us a part of the family of God. And you see, that's a motivation not to drift from God. That's a motivation that if you're listening and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... The reason why Jesus died for you was not only to take care of your sin, but it's to make you a part of the family of God. You are part of the brotherhood, which means this, you and I are accountable to each other. You and I are to hold each other accountable because we are part of the family of God. Well, he gives another reason why you and I are not to drift from God, and that is this, Jesus will set you free from the works of the devil. Notice what he says in verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, in other words, since we are human, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Jesus became like us. Why? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, And might free, verse 15, those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know what Jesus here does for you and I? Here's another reason not to drift, especially if you're not a Christian. He says that Jesus delivers us from the works of the devil. What is one of the works of the devil? It is fear. You see, you and I don't have to fear death. You know, with this whole corona thing going on, everybody fears. And there's a natural sense in which we fear because we don't want to die. But listen, to the Christian, death is not a demotion. Death is a promotion. We don't look for death, but you and I don't need to fear death. And listen, our culture, one of the things that it fears more than anything else is death. Why? Because they have no hope. Paul says in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to what? To die is gain. Recently, I read an article on psychology today, and here's what the title of the article said. It caught my attention. It said, facts to calm your fears of death and dying. And as I read the article, someone made this comment at the bottom, quote, my fear of death has gotten worse over the years, especially as my disabilities and able to function has increased. This person goes on to say, I've been searching for some way to relieve my fears, but I can't. Even this article has made me panic worse. And the person said, I'm terrified. I don't want to die. 
I don't want to not be. And so I took advantage of that opportunity and I left a comment. And here's what I said to this particular woman. I said, listen, you don't have to fear death because Jesus promises death, life after death. Jesus offers eternal life. If you're willing to embrace him as your Lord and Savior, he will set you free from the works of the devil. And one of the works of the devil is fear. I said, but if you don't accept Jesus Christ, I said, you need to fear. Well, two days later, I got a response from her. And she said, that doesn't help me. She said, that's ridiculous. She said, give me a break. See, some people today, they don't investigate the claims of Christ. They're not willing to follow the Lord without investigating the evidence. But see, one of the things that Jesus does, and this is an incentive not to drift away from salvation, is Jesus promises us boldness in this life. We don't have to fear death. We can walk in the confidence of God. But you know what else it does? It delivers us from the fear of also bondage to sin because that's one of the works of the devil. If you're a Christian, you know what Satan wants to do? He wants to get you to go back to your old life. And you see, Jesus delivered you from that. I was reading this week, again, another article about a woman in Atlanta. You'll notice the picture up on the screen. She was jogging, and she saw this deer that was caught in a fence. And it took her a little bit of time. You could see the video, but she was working hard to dislodge the deer. And so she finally got the deer out of the one, see number one there? She finally set the deer free. Well, then she ran around, this is in Atlanta, and the deer got caught a second time. A second time. And she had to go the second time in number two, and she had to stretch the fence again. You see, she had to set the deer free twice. And you know, that's exactly what Satan wants to do in your life. You see, Jesus sets you free at salvation. He delivers you from the bondage of sin. But you know what happens? If you're not careful, you get caught again. You get enslaved again to sin. And you know why Jesus died for you? He died to set you free from the works of the devil. He doesn't want you to go back to your old life. And so the writer of Hebrews here is saying to these Jewish Christians who fear death, he's saying, Jesus came to set us free from the fear of death that the devil imposes upon the human race. Well, there's one final reason why we're not to drift from our salvation, and that is this. Jesus will sympathize with you in your time of need. Notice, if you will, verses 16 through 18. He says, for assuredly, he does not give help to the angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Now that would be not just Jewish people, but spiritual children of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like us, his brethren, in all things. Why did Jesus become human like you and I? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he himself was tempted, in verse 18, in that which has suffered, in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You know what he's saying here? He's saying Jesus became like you and I. He took on a human nature. You know why? To identify with us in our struggles and our temptations. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, to want to go into sin. 
Jesus understands you when you go through a difficulty, a trial. Jesus experienced rejection. He experienced loneliness. Jesus experienced suffering, hunger. He experienced a lack of sleep. And you know why Jesus did all that? To identify with you and I. And so one of the reasons why we want to accept Jesus Christ and not drift away from salvation is Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. And you know what he'll do? He enters into your pain and suffering. When you come to him, when you're broken, when you have a lot of tears, when you're struggling with temptation of wanting to go back to your old life, you know what? Jesus is there to strengthen you and to give you his full strength if you will rely on him and trust in him. Why? Because he became human like you and I, and he went through the suffering that you and I have been through. Except Jesus was without what? Sin. He is a merciful, sympathetic, and faithful high priest. The other day, I got a call from some individual, and they were sharing with me about their child going through drugs. And they were pouring out their heart to me. Years ago, I would have listened to the call, I would have been compassionate, and I would have prayed. But this time, after listening to this woman, my heart was bleeding. I almost started to cry. Why? Because I had a daughter that went into drugs and came out of it. And so I know the brokenness. I know the pain. I can identify with her with the sleepless nights not knowing what's going to happen. And you see, I'm able to enter in because I experienced what it is to go through that. And that's Jesus. Jesus knows your struggle. He loves you. He wants you to come to him. You say, yeah, but if he loves me, why doesn't he take it away? Listen, God is going to allow you to suffer and struggle in this life. In this life, the Bible says you will have what? Trouble. But Jesus says, be of good cheer, I have overcome the what? The world. So you know what he's saying to these Jewish Christians? If you're not saved and you're intellectually convinced, he says, don't go back. Jesus is a better high priest. He's able to sympathize with you. If you're a Christian, he's saying, don't drift back into Judaism. Jesus is there for you. He's not going to take away your trial. He's not going to take away your temptation, but you know what he's going to do for you? He's going to strengthen you in the midst of it. So why shouldn't we drift? Five reasons. Here they are. Jesus says you will experience a greater judgment if you don't embrace the gospel. Secondly, Jesus has promised you a better world to come. Thirdly, Jesus died for you to bring you to glory and to make you a part of his family. Fourth, Jesus will set you free from the works of the devil. And finally, Jesus will sympathize with you in your time of need. Let's pray.